Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. On this episode, we feature two conversations with artists who are trying to find new ways to depict the natural world in the hopes of saving it. Our first guest is Maria Whiteman. She's an artist and photographer whose work defies easy categorization. It links the visual arts with the biological sciences and social observations, creating a document of how our current times are shaped by human activity. A while back, right around 2017's total solar eclipse, Maria Whiteman began a cross-country road trip. She documented truck stops over the course of her trek, and the result is Stardust, a series of still photographs printed on aluminum. More recently, Whiteman joined Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute as a research scholar, where her work focuses on how art, ecology, and climate change overlap. She joined author and filmmaker Kaylin Huffman-Brower in the WFIU studios. Maria, thank you for joining us today. Please tell us more about the Stardust series. What got you going? The Stardust series started with the eclipse, and when I was watching the eclipse and thinking about how all these people were just looking at the sky, and here we are imagining all these possibilities and all the things we can't see when we're looking at the sky because we have the glasses on or we're sharing these types of lenses so that we can witness something. And then even at the same time, there's the shadows that are reflected on the cement. I don't know if you saw any of those photographs, but there were a lot of people posting those images because you could see these refractions happening. So I just thought there was so much going on. And here it is, this one minute or it was actually several minutes, that everybody's just standing there together. So when I got on the road, I was looking at the sky quite a bit. And at the same time, I kept thinking about all the truckers that drive across this country, that drive from south to north to east to west and vice versa, how often they're on the highway, they're spending all this time. And here it is all connected to this bigger picture of the landscape. And thinking about the landscape and how it's changed over time, but yet still a lot of things remain the same. And so when I was driving, I started spending a lot of time at the truck stops, even talking to truckers and thinking about how this whole industry that's connected to these larger industries at the same time. So the agri-industry and all the goods and consumer goods that are going back and forth. And then at the same time, we're looking at the same landscape and there's so many things that we don't see and what's naked to the eye. And so I started to think about the cosmos and cosmologically what's happening around us. And so I wanted to make these composites that would really reflect a bigger picture so that at the same time when we think about what we don't see, it's also a metaphor for thinking about how... um, we don't really make these connections between agri-industry, petroculture, consumption. And so we just see really what immediately is in front of us. But this is a bigger picture. And these are the things that are affecting us. And these are the situations that are changing our landscapes, too. And 
so that's what started it. And I started to think about this as stardust. And I also thought about how David Bowie had a song and he had the Ziggy Stardust name. And, you know, and then everything starts to connect. And so for me, this was a real inspiration in thinking about the landscape and thinking about it in a bigger picture. And then when I arrived in North Carolina, I really sat and started to propose these different ideas about what would be the best way to exhibit these pieces. And so, of course, I wanted to put them on aluminum or metal to also reflect the petroculture aspect of thinking about how metals are part of our world and how oil is part of our world. And all these minerals, too, are still reflections of the way that everything is connected. So that kind of sums up a little bit of this piece. It's very complex and trying to be a bit more than just an obvious photograph of a landscape and trying to connect it to a bigger picture. One of the things that really attracts me to your work is that you get this really intimate look at the ecosystems. Mm. You're in these extraordinary landscapes with the natural world, but you also go into these intimate portraits of specific ecosystems. So I really want to hear you talk about the marine ecosystems that you found at the Wrightsville Beach in North Carolina. Oh, right. Yeah, sea stars, jellyfish, but also the knobbed whelk shells I've heard you describe. Yeah, the stardust was looking at the universe and looking at the sky. And so getting to North Carolina was looking at the ocean and also thinking about this world underneath the ocean and how you you know, you can't see it when you're walking on the beach. Spending time on the beach and thinking about this ecosystem that consists of so many parts. So you have the wind, you have the light, you have the waves, you have the dunes, you have the sand, you have the water, you have the kelp. So, you know, it's so complex and I know so little, but I started to come across these whelk shells and at first, I, I even felt guilty picking them up because they were so beautiful. And I thought, oh, you know, they belong on the beach. But I started to become more and more curious about the whelk shell, mostly because I started to ask people, how do they grow? How is it that they possibly could be this size? And so that's when I started to do some research and learn as much as I can. And so, yeah. so, Maria, describe how big the largest ones are. Right. Are they as big as your fist? Yes, or even bigger. So you, um, when you're on the beach, uh, you know, you could just be standing there, and it's all timing. And it's timing that's related to the tides. So a lot of times I was thinking, you know, I wanted to get down to the beach at low tide because either I would just be walking or filming or photographing. So I wasn't really connecting that that's when the shells would be washed up and then they would sit there on the beach and then they could even wash back into the ocean. So depending when you're walking by, these shells could be there or they might not be there. And Some of the shells would be, you know, like two inches, and then there'd be large shells that are actually up to six inches and then five inches wide. And so, you know, when you would come across a shell that hadn't been broken and just a stunning shade, so they could be almost a pearly white to a dark gray and very porous and finding sand dollars that were whole sand dollars. 
finding more and more shells and starting to look at them and thinking about how they are so connected to what's going on in the ocean and and even the health of the ocean. Because I kept thinking, what if you walked on this beach and nothing washed up ever? (laughs) And so, you know, you would start to feel like something was missing and this would be that one part of that ecosystem that's not there. And then that must obviously have its dominoes effect. And so... Finding these shells fascinated me, and so learning about how the shells grow and that they're exoskeleton, so they're not attached to the marine snail that lives in them. And so basically the marine snail releases this carbon calcium that the shell actually grows from. You're describing the ones that are kind of spiral shape inside with a star end? So you can see they have these knobs, so that's why they're called the knobbed whelks, so they're different than the conch shells. And the sea snails, when they're actually hatched, they have a bit of that shell that's attached to them already. But it's not even a tissue that attaches them. It's just that they're able to release what the shell needs in order for it to grow. So it's like a bone. But it's different than a turtle that has a shell that's attached with the tissue. So if you took that shell off, that turtle wouldn't be able to live without it. And so the snails, when they're hatched, they're just attached with this tiny bone, but they can actually leave it. But they stay in the shell because it protects them. And so as they continue to grow, then the shell grows as long as they're living in the shell. This is also a sign of the health of the ecosystem because if these small snails are dying or they have nowhere to live or there's not enough shells because they can move from one shell to another shell, then it starts to tell you that something's off. So one time I'm walking and I find these, uh, they're called egg casings, and they look like a necklace. So the nickname is a mermaid's necklace, and they're really beautiful. I saw pictures on your website. and So anybody who wants to check these out, definitely go to the Maria Whiteman website and see many of her wonderful photographs. But yeah, tell us about these mermaid necklaces. Yeah, so had I not learned anything, I would have walked right by these because... They just look like straw that's wrapped together. And you wouldn't think that this was something that was alive, that was living. So I saw them and I picked them up because what happens is they get washed up and seagulls will eat them because they're very nutritious and or they dehydrate. They just dry out. So I picked it up and I put them in a bag with salt water and brought these, I had two casings. So they're actually kind of thick and bulky. And so I carried them back to my car and drove back home and put them into a big glass bowl with the salt water. And I always had lots of shells at this point because I started collecting the shells. And so I created this little ecosystem or this little microcosm. And I put the egg casings in there and just thought, well, We'll see what happens. And within hours, they started hatching. And at first, I I was like, oh, my goodness, how many are going to hatch? And then I realized there's going to be over thousands hatching. Sea snails. Tiny sea snails with those tiny little shells attached to them that are going to be as big as the ones that I find on the beach. Okay, wait a minute. 
When they hatch, they already have a shell? They already have a tiny, tiny little shell attached. Oh, that's and so cool. It's so cool. And the thing was that really I only had hours because that water that they're hatching in, they need all sorts of things in order for them to survive. So there was enough oxygen in the water. I had seaweed in the water, so they were already eating what was coming off the seaweed. They were eating what was coming off the seashells. So that could only last for so long. And I realized that, and I realized that this whole microcosm that they were in, if I didn't get them back to the ocean, they wouldn't make it. So there'd be thousands and thousands of baby snail shells. It was marvelous to see this whole world. And I got to witness it and just watch it grow and watch them grow. They grow actually pretty fast. So you could see the ones that were hungry and and moving around quite quickly. And you could see the shells getting a little bit bigger. So then I knew it was time. I had to bring them back because I didn't really have an aquarium. I just had a little world that I was watching and witnessing. It just made me realize how delicate and fragile this whole ecosystem is. And so if one thing's off, everything's off. So I brought them back to the pier and dumped them into the ocean because they actually need the current. They need all of those different um, under-the-water pressures and bacteria, anything that's growing around them to survive. And so off they went. (laughs) I love hearing about your process. I mean, I think casual observers might think, oh, a photographer just walks on the beach and goes snap, snap, cool photos, does a great job of printing. And yet you're diving into a deep, long-term examination. You're doing some scientific research, often talking to scientists to really find out what the heck's going on. That's right. And I did. I went over to the aquarium and talked to the marine biologists over there. And of course, this little world is connected to a bigger world. And the bigger world is what's going on on the surface and what's happening on the beach, because this beach that this whole experience took place is Wrightsville Beach in North Carolina. And they're trying to keep the oil companies from drilling. They're trying to keep the beach as a beautiful beach for tourism. So what happens is that beach is slowly disappearing and the dunes are slowly disappearing. So I filmed everything because it's all part of this ecological system that exists there. And for six weeks to eight weeks, you have beach nourishment that happens and it's so invasive because at first you have all these signs that say, you know, be careful where you walk. This is fragile grass. These are dunes that we're trying to protect. And then overnight you've got these backhoes coming in and massive trucks with these pipes that look like the same pipes that crude oil travels through. (laughs) And so they place these pipes across the beach and they'll have, you know, spray-painted, keep off, and suddenly the whole picture of that beach changes because you realize without this nourishment, there wouldn't be a beach. So they're placing the pipes to basically hold the sand. (laughs) Yep. So what it does is it vacuums sand out of the ocean and brings it onto the beach to build the beach up again, to build the sand up again, because the erosion is moving quicker than they can nourish it. So, you know, the re-nourishment happens, and 
they can't even keep up with the erosion. So they'll bring back all that sand so that Wrightsville Beach will look like Wrightsville Beach, but then it starts to erode again. And it's going to take more and more sand from the ocean because they vacuum it up to keep this beach, to sustain a beach. Is it from just rising tides? It's from rising tides. It's from hurricanes. It's from the weather changing. And it's also a natural system. There are areas that are going to erode, and sand migrates and moves. But what happens, too, is this process becomes so invasive, and you have these large, large pipes that are going across the sand. But also... This is what's affecting the shells and the marine life because these massive vacuums are there. And you can imagine how that's probably upsetting that whole system underwater. When everything's so delicate and then, boom, you've got these big machines and technology that's trying to sustain something, it really seems absurd. Well, and the irony that strikes me as you describe it is that you're calling it nourishment. I'm assuming somebody right. else has named it nourishment. Right, right. And yet, yeah, it may retain the beach, but is it really nourishing right. That's to the right. entire ecosystem? Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's what we do. <laughs> we humankind. <laughs> we humankind. Exactly. Oh boy. <laughs> You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is artist and photographer Maria Whiteman, who recently joined Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute as a research scholar. She's speaking with Caitlin Huffman Brower. So you've been describing these magical creatures and their artifacts that you're finding on the beach. Shall we talk about your vision and current exploration here in Bloomington? Oh, yes. Yes. So tell me what you're studying here and what you're planning. Yeah, it's really exciting to be in Indiana and Bloomington. When I arrived, I started to explore the area and started to think about what's here, what is going on in this environment and what sort of tensions in the landscapes am I going to see? And and that's my approach as an artist because I'm in love with the landscape and I love being outside and looking at what's happening around me and how can I connect to the landscape that I'm now living in. And that's my way of just adapting to a new environment not unlike what animals probably do and other types of creatures. So this is a really natural habit. When I move to a new place, I start thinking about what's here and how can I learn about this environment that I live in. So it's a way to build a relationship. And it's good advice if you move a lot. (laughs) So I started to take hikes on the trails, and I was um, walking around Griffey Lake. And noticing a lot of the mushrooms and the fungi growing. And it intrigued me the same way that the whelk shells would intrigue me when I'd see them wash up on the beach. So I started to get down into the dirt and photographing them (laughs) and looking at them and, and had the same approach, like, should I actually touch it and remove it or should I just leave it? And so... And then I thought, no, I'm, I want to I learn about these creatures, too. And 
I started to look at the different ones and photographing them in various ways. And and before I started picking the mushrooms, I would leave them and just photograph them from above and below. It was amazing how many mushrooms I would see and just all the fungus that was around. And then also looking at the different types of lichen and moss. And so that's when I thought, I think that it should be fungus and mycelia, and this is going to be the new project. And yet, it you know, it very much connects to the work I did at Wrightsville Beach, and it connects to the Stardust series. And, you know, I think all my work really does have this thread that seems to continually interweave with the different topics and issues that I'm interested in. And so sometimes it is those tensions at first where I think, well, here everybody's talking about how much the climate is changing. And it's always around us everywhere and everywhere we look. So taking one little piece of this ecosystem here in Indiana, which is the fungi, would probably teach me quite a bit about what's happening with this environment here and what changes we see in Indiana. So this started the fungi. The title for your current Mm. exploration is Mycelia, Living Art Installation. And not everybody really realizes, I don't believe, out there, I certainly didn't know until the last three or four years, how much the fungi kingdom is Mm actually below ground and completely unseen. So when we see the mushroom, that's just the fruit that pops up for a very brief part of its lifespan that the mycelia network is what's really going on. Right. That's what fascinates me. And also that it's not a plant. It's closer to the animal kingdom. So here is this fungi that grows. And like you said, it's, you know, we're seeing the fruit of it, but underneath it is this whole existence of the cellular membranes that are just growing from two to four inches a day and this whole network that's underneath our feet. And they're very powerful. And so what fascinates me and how I hope that this is something that I can connect to a bigger picture is that And I thought about this a lot because it's not just that we're causing all this destruction and then we have to now think of ways that we're going to clean this up, if that's even possible. But there's other systems out there that are also reacting to a destruction that's happening. And they're just trying to survive. So here's my cilia, to me, that's just naturally trying to figure out how to survive by picking up that there's something off in the system. So looking at this world that I need to learn a lot about and I know very little, that's where I start. And also coming across Paul Stamets' work, and then here I'm fortunate enough to work with a distinguished professor in biology, Roger Hangarter, and then I also am working with Betsy Stirrett in the art department, So we're sitting down and we're talking about fungi and how this can turn into an art project that also is connected to what's happening in the environment and climate change and the ecological history here. So it's a big picture, and I'm really at the very beginning of it, and I'm so excited about it. So I'm ordering lots of books and reading and reading Paul Stamets' work as well. But what I'm thinking is that 
there's so much you can do with fungi and mycelia. I'd like to build things out of it. I just recently came across this photograph that I wish I had brought with me, but I'll describe it. It's in Stamet's book on mycelium running, and it's a photograph of oyster mushrooms that are fruiting out of a chair. Oh, fun. And it's brilliant. And so this, to me, was, here it is. This is the vision that I'm having about working with fungi and working with mycelia to create these art installations. And that's what I mean about live art. I want it to be alive. I want it to grow. I want it to be interactive. I'd like it to be work that could even continue to involve other people that might add to the mycelia network. So right now I'm just in that stage of um, having visions of what are these possibilities. So we're now going to start ordering the mycelia in different types and thinking about how to work with it as a material. So you can build structures out of mycelia or you can stuff different types of chairs and couches <laughs> and dresses with straw and have the, the fungi grow right out of it or the mycelia growing and interweaving in it. So there's a lot of experimenting that's going to happen over the year. And, and then some of the actual art pieces will start to develop. But in the meantime, I do have a show in Toronto, and that's going to be the first time that I'm going to actually show some of the mycelia work and, okay. and think about how this is going to be the first stage of it. So when we're talking about mycelia, just another point of clarity, yeah. we're really talking about the root-like structure yes. that's typically underground. So are you going to do cross-sections of the ground, or are you going to expose it by, like, whatever, exposing some straw that's been myceliated? Yeah, I, you know, I think all of that, right? <laughs> because I think that what would be interesting is to see all those membranes and to see how that network actually does continue to stretch out and to grow or travel or network. And so I'd like to build environments where I can watch that happen. And so I'd like to work with time lapse, which is what I'm doing now. We've taken mushrooms and collected puffballs, all different types of fungi that I found just around Griffey Lake and set up a camera and have started this time-lapse film of the decomposition of the fungi. So we started with just watching it decay and basically turn into a pulp. And then also that's connected to the maggots that are in there in the larva. And so looking at that and then reversing that and then watching how it actually grows. So the mycelia and mycelium, you know, figuring out how to work with it and to keep it growing. And then when it flowers, what happens to it after that? And how does that continue to keep going? So that's what I need to figure out because I want it to be connected to some type of growth that can continue happening. But at the same time, the decay process is also essential. That's where the nutrients come back in and the decomposition that happens in the cycle of the life of the fungi. Tell us about the Environmental Resilience Institute. Yes. So this vision was to pull together 
a grand challenge idea on the environment and start this institute, which they would call the Environmental Resilience Institute. So there's a lot more to this project because they started this years ago and they came together and it was several, several scholars that worked on the proposal for the grand challenge. Um, it seems quite visionary because they're pulling together multiple disciplines. It's very interdisciplinary. That's right. It is. Um, so it's 12 of us that basically are now what has become the manifestation of ERI. This was their dream was to bring in scholars for two to four years that could just do their research and whose work was connected to the environment and to changes that were happening in our environment. And so there was Roger Hangarder, the biologist, and the curator and artist, Betsy Stirat, that were on my hiring committee and were looking for an artist to bring in for an artist in social practice whose work was connected to topics and issues around the environment and climate change. Why do you think the title has the word resilience in it instead of something like mm. you hear sustainability? Yeah, that was one of the big attractions for me because it said resilience in its description. And this is what brings us together. So the fellows, um, there's 12 of us, and some of them are working on very different projects from bird migration to invasive species of grass and vegetation. It's a variety. And so resilience, I think, was a way for all of us to have a conversation about how our work might relate to this word rather than a word like sustainability. Because I think that there's been so many shifts in thinking about what's happening to the environment that you do start to think about how we use these words. And what I like about the word resilience is it gives me a little bit of hope that maybe if we start working with our nature collaborators like fungi and thinking about, you know, how we're connected to this ecological system and we're part of it too, maybe there's more communication that can happen and ways that we can think about how we can be resilient. And I think it's a powerful word to use. And, you know, it's like resurgent or, you know, thinking about these other types of ways to frame the environmental situation we're in. And yeah, I so agree with you. you know, like sustainability sort of sounds like, you know, you're lifting weights. Like, oh, can I keep it together? And, and resilience is very as you say, has a spring of hope to it. And nature is not outside of us. We are nature. We are part of that system. And we have a huge role in this biodiversity that we're trying to keep healthy. Maria Whiteman, thank you for joining me in Conversations on Profiles. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Artist and photographer Maria Whiteman of IU's Environmental Resilience Institute. She's been speaking with Kaylin Huffman Brower. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU.
Our next guest is Rebecca Allen, a painter whose work centers on landscapes. Her creations have been exhibited nationally and abroad for more than a quarter century, and in them she attempts to express the fragility of our ecosystems and the unpredictability of nature's cycles. Some of Rebecca Allen's creations were recently displayed here in Bloomington as part of a live multimedia performance, The Crossroads Project, Rising Tide. While she was here, she spoke with WFIU's Shane Lauder. Rebecca, welcome to Profiles. So happy to be here. Thank you, Shane. Let's begin with how the Crossroads Project began and how you became involved. The Crossroads Project began with the motivation of uh, climate scientist Dr. Robert Davies from Utah State University. And together with the Fry Street Quartet, which is the string quartet in residence there, they agreed that there was a need for a way to communicate the complex data of climate change to a much broader audience beyond climate scientists and people in that field. And so it was really through Rob Davies' inspiration and desire to find a way to do that and his love of music that led to the building of a network of relationships with myself and with the composer Laura Kaminsky, with the photographer Garth Lenz. And so it all started at Utah State University in Rob Davies' mind. (laughs) I see. And how did you become involved? Well, I became involved through the composer, Laura Kaminsky. When Laura was commissioned to write a string quartet for this blossoming project, there was a question about including the visual arts as a part of the experience of the piece because the piece is really presented in a live format as a string quartet blended with the scientist's narrative and the visual arts are now a part of that or they have been a part of it since the early stages. So Laura suggested me and I said absolutely yes because I had been thinking about these problems for a number of years, having lived in the Pacific Northwest for many years and spent a lot of time working and teaching in and around rivers in particular and watersheds. And so I was very excited to be involved. Can you kind of describe how does Rob Davies and the musicians and Laura and you, how do you conceive all of these different sensual experiences articulating scientific data and understanding. I like the fact they use the word conceive because to me that means that talks about thinking. And we think with each other. We think independently as individuals in our distinct disciplines of the visual arts, music, and science. But we think together and learn together and have done so in our desire to make a work together that would be greater than the sum of its parts. (laughs) And so we think about how to use the languages of our disciplines as a medium for artistic expression and communication, both together. 
A New York Times article from 2014 about this project calls your paintings kind of a transition between the physicist's spoken text and the music. And so did you create paintings specifically for this project or were some chosen from your catalog of work? Both. Some of the images that you see in the performance are from paintings that I made in response to the music and the science. And some of the imagery came from existing works, paintings of the landscape that were inspired by rivers and fires and farmlands in an abstract language, but a little bit of both. And when you say you made paintings in response to the music, how did that work? That's a difficult question, but it's a good question because I think it speaks to the challenges of working with experts across disciplines. And Rob had an overarching request of us, of the collaborators, which was how can each of us create new imagery or new sounds that would not so much illustrate the science, but evoke an emotional response in the audience. So I realized that what I probably needed to do as a painter was to do what I loved the most, to find color and form and texture and imagery that came out of my experience of the music. And I, I mean, I live with the composer, so I was very close to the process of the writing of the work. And we talked about what was generating some of the musical notation. Let's learn about your personal relationship with nature. How did yeah. this closeness with nature begin? Well, I was just talking to someone here on the campus about the importance of plants and trees in our direct experience of our life on Earth. And that's part of how I think about the process of painting and the experience of making something from nothing as a visual artist. All artistic disciplines are involved with that kind of creative, generative process. But when I lived in the Pacific Northwest, I was confronted with mountains and bodies of water that were in a much larger scale than I'd ever experienced having grown up in the Northeast. And so part of the experience of nature for me is thinking back to how I learned about walking in those woods and understanding their beauty, but also their power. So my experience of the natural world is, as it is with many of us, complex. You know, we're all creatures of nature, and we all respond to the changing of the seasons, for example. So that finds its way into how I think about an image or a color world. And so when you were growing up, and as you have said in interviews, your family went out on hikes a lot, and that's yeah. how you got to experience nature. Yeah, absolutely. I was never afraid of going out in the woods because my mom and dad took my brothers and I on hikes all the time and encouraged us to swim and play and enjoy. We also, for a short period of time when I was a kid, lived right along the shores of Lake Erie in the early 60s. And even though we moved away when I was six years old, 
whenever we go back, I noticed that at a child's level that the shoreline was changing and erosion was the reason. And so the whole idea of erosion for a kid is hard to wrap one's mind around. But I would say, Shane, that that was one of the first moments that I really started to understand the relationship with water, between water and the shoreline. And so in all this real connection, just sort of normal, everyday, family-level connection with nature, is that where your art began, your desire, your passion to draw and play with color? I've never really put my finger on that, um, where everything began. But it was certainly encouraged. Painting and drawing, for me, were always something positive in my growing up years and my education. But also, I'm more or less an introvert. And I think the natural world and the world of painting, where one is alone, were always comfortable spaces for me to be in. And so there was a catalyst. My grandfather on my dad's side was a sign painter. And so I was around artistic pursuits and graphic design from a young age, too. Maybe this was part of your artistic education. At what point did you start to move away from perhaps realistic depictions of nature to finding something more meaningful in abstract play of color, shape, massing? I really have to give credit to one of my first teachers in college. His name was Richard Kleeman at Allegheny College. And also the experience of studying art history there. The study of art history, to me, is enriching for an artist and necessary, I think. So it was a privilege to have that kind of experience. But Mr. Kleeman took all of the drawing students out to Tamarack Lake, set us out there with some Japanese brushes and ink and paper, and said, I'll be back in an hour. (laughs) And that Japanese brush was an instrument of abstraction, I'll tell you, Shane. That's terrific. (laughs) Now, you and I have something in common in that we both moved from sort of a more mellow climate and physical environment to the Pacific Northwest. We both wound up in Seattle at about roughly the same time. And I know for me, coming from the middle of Indiana and winding up in this place of big nature, the (laughs) mountains, the rivers, the forests, the ocean, the sound, the islands, all that stuff, it just really blew my mind. Can I ask you a question? What year was that? 1986. Okay. You got there in 1990, right? Yeah, but still right around the same period of time. Yes. What was that experience like for you? I mean, had you ever been to the Pacific Northwest? No. And I went there to an interview for a job at the Seattle Art Museum. I was so surprised that I was hired as a young baby museum educator. And then I was just immersed in the life and culture of the Pacific Northwest and the geology, the geography, the mountains, the weather. The volcanoes, too. The volcanoes. Earthquakes. Earthquakes. And I just kept looking around and saying, wow, this is the United States, too. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it really is shocking out there for someone from a much... You know, here in the Midwest, we have weather, and mm-hmm. the, and the weather can be really brutal. Mm-hmm. But the landscape itself, 
isn't too bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and you get out to the Pacific Northwest, and it just feels like you're at the end of the known universe. And everything is there and doesn't mm-hmm. care about you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so now when you're out there, part of your work as an educator started to engage with the Nooksack tribe yeah. up in Deming, up yep. on the Nooksack River. Right. What did you learn from that community's connection with their landscape? The uh, connection with the indigenous tribal groups in the Pacific Northwest really started back when I was the museum educator at the Seattle Art Museum because my colleagues and I were involved in developing programs around the collections of Pacific Northwest Native American art. So it really started with my colleague Annie Ross and her work and the work of the curators there. But later when I became a Washington State artist in residence, I spent time in the Nooksack lands teaching at a school up in Deming, as you mentioned. And first of all, what I learned almost upon arrival in Deming was how important the Nooksack River was to the life of people, not just for fishing, but for transportation and for the habitat that it provides for fish and plants and trees. I always would go back there to teach the next few years, and I started to understand on a deeper level how that river was the lifeblood for the Nooksack community, and it became a special place. And you uh, had mentioned in an interview that you were looking at and you learned from the seasonal aspect of the river that it would flood and then it would recede. Next year came around, it would flood. And then we recede. Developing this kind of observation, I mean, I'm sure you already had it going on as an artist. But did that sort of ease you or bring you into sort of the position of a scientist? Like how did that kind of artistic observation overlap with scientific observation? The Pacific Northwest offered so much in the way of alternative forms of education There were a lot of programs that one could take workshops to go and study the impact of climate change on the rivers. And I participated in one of these with a geologist named John Rydell up in the Cascade Mountains. And that's when I really started to make the connections between the scientific dimension of learning and artistic practice. And I would read, you know, I was curious about the impact of the floods on salmon populations, on plant life, on pollution. One of the things that really impacted me was when I saw that floodwaters really bring a lot of pollutants downriver. And we see that today in even greater instances. So it was in part because I had access to studying other kinds of alternative spaces with scientists there. When we talk about floods that are anticipated every year and that have to do with a more predictable kind of climate cycle, those kind of floodwaters over the generations and centuries really in different cultures are used to the benefit of agriculture and other endeavors, the kinds of fertilization, natural fertilization that can come when flooding happens. But today we're talking about the impact of climate change and how it's more catastrophic. 
And now what my colleagues and I think about a lot and try to understand is how climate change has changed precipitation patterns throughout the world and and I think in particular of rivers. So the catastrophic floods that we're now experiencing with more frequency have to do with rising temperatures and with an imbalance in the climate system around the globe. And so an example of that would be in the Pacific Northwest, there's more rain now than ever before when there is rain, and that rain happens earlier in the season. In the past, snow melt from the mountains would be distributed throughout a longer season, and that would help to replenish the rivers. Now that snow melt melts much earlier, and as a result, you see droughts in the river systems along the Nooksack and the Icicle River and many of the important rivers that feed agriculture and human life. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is painter Rebecca Allen, whose work was recently featured here in Bloomington as part of a live multimedia performance, The Crossroads Project, Rising Tide. She's speaking with WFIU's Shane Lauder. Now, in 2009, you were the first visual artist to have an exhibition and present a joint lecture with the ecologist Dr. David Strayer at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, which is a scientific research institute in Millbrook, New York. Could you please tell us about that event, you know, what you talked about, and how was it received? I'm so happy you asked me about the Cary Institute for Ecosystem Studies because the Cary Institute does extremely important work and research that makes its way into legislative practice and law around environmental protections. That's one of the roles that the Institute plays in our day-to-day lives. But I became involved with the Cary Institute simply because I would go to the grounds. It's in uh, Millbrook, New York, right along the Hudson River, and just walk the fields and sketch and make notes. And then I got to know their president, Bill Schlesinger, who was the president at the time, and learned from Bill that he and his family were interested in painting. And that led to a longer-term conversation with the scientists there. And I had the opportunity to speak on a panel with Dr. Strayer. And, you know, we talked in some ways about some of the things that you and I were just talking about in terms of this relationship between hard scientific research and the pursuit of factual information and data and the communication of our love for the earth, our love for rivers and streams through visual imagery. And as I recall, looking back that many years, that was one of the things that I was interested in and have since continued as an advisor there. How many pictures did you exhibit at the Institute? I think there were about 25 or 30 paintings. And did the audience, did the people who came to the talk, did they really get it? Yeah, they did. And that was like finding a new kind of family for me. And now to bring the science back to a very personal kind of connection, 
in addition to all your painting and your research and your writing and your education work, you design gardens. Yes. And your business is called Painterly Gardens, Mm -hmm. which I think is a wonderfully evocative. It's a great mix of what you bring to people and what you put on walls and what you can actually bring into people's lives because you're out there helping people have their own personal relationship with nature (laughs) at home. What are your considerations when you're going to help someone create a garden for their home? Oh, it's it's so interesting, that, that question. Um, well, it all started with the trash heap in my own apartment building in the Bronx. And <laughs> Oh, tell me about that. I was serving on my co-op board, and one of the jobs that I was given was to transform the property in whatever way we could. And there was a lot of visible garbage next to our trash enclosure. And over a period of time, I just thought, why not make a garden there? And so over a period of five years, my neighbors and I worked together to start remediating the property and working with some of the plants that were there, but also adding things that were more adaptable to this very windy and sometimes dramatic corner of our neighborhood, weather-wise. And since then, I've worked as the plant records manager for a private garden up in Mount Kisco, and I've learned a lot from my colleagues there. So I decided that I would start a small business, and I work with clients to help them develop a palette, really, and to look at plants together. Those are the sort of steps of the process that are so interesting to me to try to get a sense of plants that people respond to just intuitively at first, and then to talk about all of the other considerations. Where are these plants going to be planted? What is the function of the garden? How will we think about the four seasons of the garden? Those are the kinds of things that come into play in designing a... Fragrances, if you plant flowers. absolutely. Bushes. It's interesting that you use the word palette, Mm -hmm. and I heard it two different ways. There's the palette of the painter's... Yes. And then there's the palate of the one who tastes. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's an interesting way to sort of play that word in terms of designing a garden. I never thought of the second palate. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I'm also interested that you use the word remediate. And I'm sure that when you were transforming that garbage plot, that Mm -hmm. soil remediation was a big concern. But also for, you know, homes, if someone says, well... The previous owner was using pesticides all over this yard. I want to get away from that. And so, I mean, I know that in all kinds of ways, agriculture and other kinds of land management, soil remediation is Mm -hmm. so, so important. Oh, it's so important. What a huge learning curve we're all on with this. And I'm sure there are many experts here at the university who study and understand it in depth. You know, one of the things we talk about in the Crossroads Project is that soil is fascinating. It takes, I don't know how many billion parts of insects and organic matter to create one teaspoonful of soil. And so when we look at a site in which pesticides have been used, we can work with it, but we really have to think about organic material that can help heal the soil and introduce nutrients back into it, just like people need nutrients. And that's part of your work as a garden designer, isn't it? Yeah. It's one of the more wonky things that I talk about with clients because 
most people understand the concept when they look at a patch of soil and it looks dry and it has no rich color to it. Here we go back to the word palette. People intuitively understand that there's something missing there. You've stated in interviews that your engagement with landscape painting, you consider it transcendental, Mm -hmm. but you draw on traditions dating from the Renaissance up to the present day. And to quote you, it's a desire to invent a new cosmological landscape. What is that cosmological landscape you feel trying to come through in your paintings? I think one of the most interesting and difficult things to do as a visual artist is to reinvent the world. And I mean, I'm not, (laughs) that sounds very ego-driven, but when I look back at the works of Peter Bruegel, for example, the painter, and you look at how he depicted the stars and the night sky and the birds and the relationship between those things and the agricultural seasons, There is a connection between what we do on the earth and what happens in the cosmos. And I am trying in my work to re-enchant our relationship with the world beyond ours. And I think of that as cosmos. So I'm trying to invent reinvent a cosmological landscape in that sense. And do you feel like your use of color, the layering of color, that you're reaching somewhere, you're inviting a viewer to feel something else? Yes, very much so, because the language of abstraction is, it, it allows us to have perceptual responses without a connection necessarily to a narrative or to a story. I always think of a painting as a place to be for the painter and for the viewer. It's a place to be, first and foremost. And if you can be stimulated by that place and enjoy that place, all the better to take the next step to understanding. Rebecca Allen, thank you so much for being with us on Profiles. My pleasure. Thank you, Shane. visual artist Rebecca Allen. She's been speaking with WFIU's Shane Lauder. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.